Hey, this is Sarah. Welcome to Podcast Therapists. So the other podcast therapists, Amanda, Caroline, and I, decided to release this episode today, interrupting our anxiety series, which we promise we'll get back to. We had the opportunity to record this episode just before the tragic murder of Dante Wright, as well as before the verdict was read in the Derek Chauvin case. As three white women, we are business owners and therapists and moms, and we are always looking for ways to be better humans and to fight racism. We recorded this episode with anti-racist and diversity, equity, and inclusion coach, Nicole Osei. We're airing it now because we're hoping people will be ready to listen and learn just as we did talking with Nicole. So please take a listen, learn what Nicole thinks white parents should know, how we can work towards raising anti-racist children, and even what we can do to run better businesses out there. We hope this is helpful in some way and that you all will be able to use it to fight the structural racism inherently present in our country today. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Podcast Therapist. Hi, Caroline. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Sarah. Hi. So I'm so excited. We've been waiting for our guest today. And Amanda, will you introduce our guest? A hundred percent. Today, I'm genuinely honored to introduce to you all one of my oldest and dearest friends, Nicole Osei. Um, I'm going to cry, which is fine for me, but So Nicole is currently the director of school culture in Boston Public Schools and works as a diversity, equity, inclusion, and anti-racism consultant in Boston, but you can also get her virtually. But more importantly, you all, like Nicole is one of the kindest, smartest, um, warmest, funniest, fun, best dancer, Um, and friend for over 20 years that I could ever kind of have and the reason I am crying is because I'm so thrilled to be able to like let you all hear someone I'm so impressed by and I'm just like kind of happy that Sarah and Caroline you can meet one of my oldest friends so yeah it just feels good to me we're so excited hi Nicole hi so Nicole um, before we even dive in, what we're going to be talking about today is really around your work and Sarah and Caroline and I really, um, want to learn from you and, um, want to hear from you about what we as white women can do to, to just be better people. And I know white women have been complicit in white supremacy for a long time. And we want to hear about the history of that and hear what we can do, um, as women and as parents, um, and in that, I want to know kind of from you, how did you end up doing this work? Sure. Thanks. Um, and thanks for having me. Um, I would say, you know, obviously step one as a black woman growing up in America, um, sort of thinking about uh, racism and anti-racism and the work around that has always been a part of my life. Uh, but I think what solidified it is that over the last about 20 years now, 
Um, I've been working in schools and very specifically schools that are about, you know, 98 to 99% uh, people of color um, and people from communities that, um, you know, have been sort of traumatized for generations. Um, and I think because of that work and because I feel so sort of pulled to do everything possible for my kids and, and their families, um, in this moment right now, I feel like the work of um, anti-racism is at the forefront um, for me. And, and so that's how I sort of uh, move towards this work around anti-racism as well as working in a school. So we're super, super happy to have you here for that because it's like we as women want to know what we can do better and, and learn from you. And so can you kind of talk to us about the history of white women's role in, in racism? That's a hard question. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, so I think the word history is interesting because I don't think much has changed over time. I mean we can talk about sort of um, starting back in slavery, we can talk about sort of Jim Crow, we can talk about, um, you know, voting rights, we can talk about, you know, housing law and redlining and, you know, all of the ways that our sort of American society has been structured and sort of the lack of action from sort of the white community in general, but white women, um, as sort of predictable allies, you would think, right? Because they were sort of, um, there's a parallel, but not similar um, experience for white women in this country. Um, but I think, you know, white feminism uh, is a piece of it where it's sort of about the fact that there's an insulated group of white women that sort of are willing to fight and get loud and use um, their power against oppression only if it directly affects them. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's the piece that's most important. I think that runs through history. Can you talk more about that? Like, what does that look like today? Do you know what I mean? Like, what does that actually look like in a human being today? This insulated sure. group of white women? Sure, I think it means um, sort of what about ism? Well, like, is my, or like, I like to call it the oppression Ooh. Olympics. Olympics. That's a really interesting thing that you just said. Go ahead. Yeah, say that yeah, again. Yeah, so actually. like in this um sort of oppression Olympics, right? It's like, you know, well, what about the fact that women experience? What about the fact that we also are fighting for equal pay? What about? Um, and so, you know, no, no black person that I know is ever going to think or say like, yeah, that's not important. Um, but when we're centering a conversation or a movement or action around sort of anti-blackness or anti-racism, that's wildly unhelpful, um, even if it makes sort of white women feel as if like solidarity, you know, like we get it because our struggle is like your struggle because it's, that's a lie. Um, and so we see that a lot. And maybe, you know, you'll show up you know, to a woman's march, but be like a little bit more hesitant to show up to a Black Lives Matter march, let's say, or you're very vocal, vocal about the Me Too movement, but, you know, might hesitate about posting or responding to, you know, sort of anti-Blackness um, and anti-racism. 
is that just a white woman thing or any kind of not white man thing? You know what I mean? Uh, I think it comes up in white women more frequently than other marginalized groups. Yeah, I mean, um, and I think, sorry, go ahead. I was just thinking back to the Women's March in particular, because you mentioned that and just how many women were fired up and how many women talk, white women talked about that. And then, you know, I, again, I'm just basically stating the obvious, but, um, but then looking around when all those things were rolling out with Black Lives Matter and they were not wearing hats. I mean, they weren't doing anything. They weren't right. what, you know, right. Yeah. Like people got nervous about putting signs in their yard. People got, it, well, and isn't that why white feminism is really damaging? Absolutely. Sure. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to speak from personal experience. Um, you know, how I grew up and where I grew up um, led me to develop my closest relationships, female relationships with white women. But I've also had this underlying fear my whole life of white women because there's always a thought that um, there was a dishonesty about their allyship um, because when like push came to shove, you wouldn't use your voice for me or your power for me. Um, because honestly, um, there's sort of like an addiction related to um, sort of whiteness or proximity to whiteness um, for the comfort and, and safety that it provides, particularly white women, I think. Um, and, you know, black, black people get ghosted when, when, push comes to shove a lot of times and that dishonesty is really scary um and the complicity is really scary i think um for a lot of black folk yeah it must uh, i mean the betrayal in that must be really difficult or the, the yeah. lack of consistent connection like the trust and i think that there's like another piece to that right where um this wow this is really getting honest but you know there is a palatable blackness that's like acceptable to a lot of white women. And I've, you know, I've experienced that because of my background. Um, but if I sounded different, if I came from somewhere different, if I didn't go to the schools that I went to, um, if I didn't dress and look and present the way I do, like, would you like be my friend? Would, would I not scare you the way sort of a more vocal or, you know, sort of different presenting black woman um, you know, like it just, it's scary to think about that. Why is my blackness different to you than another person's blackness? Um, when I experience it the same way. So there's lots of layers there, but. It's complicated. I mean, I'm personally happy, Nicole, that you said that because we've been friends for so long, um, that you like, just put that out there because I didn't know that you felt that about like anxiety about being close with white women. Um, and I'm just glad you told me that, you know, being honest. I know. I love that. That's why I'm so happy you're here. Yeah, I don't. It's funny. Like as you're talking, I hate that we're not like jumping right in and talking and engaging, but it's almost, it's making me think so much, mm -hmm. Nicole. Like if you could see us, like we're all not looking at each other. We're all thinking we're all in our own bubbles. Like I think kind of going through vast videos of our own lives as you're speaking to us. Um, 
And just, I'm trying to think about like even what to ask next because it's making me think about 5 million things at once, truthfully. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I'm thinking about not only my own friendships or my, but my own presentation, my own ability to show up and be present and be consistent, but also raising, I, I'm raising a young white woman. Um, and so I'm thinking about what messaging do I want to make sure she has and understands. Um, Can I ask a weird question, Sarah? So oh, yeah. Did some... Is some of what Nicole said around like proximity to being to like whiteness as safety and like people ghosting and being feeling anxious about that? Is that some of what you could potentially experience as a gay woman? Yes, it is. But I think um, so. What's so different, and Nicole, you can speak to this too, because I think sometimes um, you know you'll hear comments about things in politics, for example, people will say, okay, so if things are not going well for black people, the gays are next, or, you know, things like kind of get said in, in communities yeah. about things like that. Um, but there is quite a big difference for us too, in the sense that, um, you know, I mean, I can walk into a room mm -hmm. and people aren't automatically going to know necessarily where Nicole, if you walk in a room, People and then are that's gonna where recognize the whataboutisms, that. right? Mm -hmm. And that's what you're talking about, Nicole, is the what about what about of white women that doesn't make that doesn't line up. Is that what you're kind of talking about? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's a feeling within communities of color and marginalized groups that like, you know, we don't we don't win collectively, you know, mm -hmm. sort of unless each group wins. But I think that the again, this like competition between you know who suffers more or who should be prioritized is really tough and i think it's really tough specifically for black folks and people of color um because what we're speaking of has is so much woven into the fabric of our country and is so part of the like the stru structures that it's like almost invisible. It's just like so normalized anti-blackness um, and a lack of, you know, equality and, and a presence of oppression for black people in particular, but people of color in general, that it's not the same, no. you know? Um, it's not. And, it, you know, there's a difference for white passing people of color, mm -hmm. you know, and those are honest conversations to be had too. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I, I remember I had a conversation with a, um, a school administrator that is black and we were talking and he said, well, you know what I mean. And I was like, actually, I don't. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I wish I could say I did and be empathic. And I appreciate you saying that to me. But in reality, no, I don't. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the other piece is um, when you think about like what you're saying, Nicole, like when you just look back at just every institution, every infrastructure in our country has something that has woven this racist piece in it. Yeah. So let's say our listeners, because I think, I mean, I think we all here believe that these systems and structures are, are systemic. I just said the same thing, but like mm -hmm. it's a systemic, it's systemic in this country. So what can we as white women start beginning to do and start working towards? Because we have to, we have to fight these structures and these systems. So where do we start? Nicole? Sure. I mean, it sounds like you all already hit number one, right? Sort of like, uh, 
the acceptance that everyone, regardless of race um, or station, is 100% socialized into whiteness um, in this country and has or does uphold white supremacy supremacy culture in their lives, period. Like once that's like accepted, the work can then sort of begin. Um, can I stop you for a second? Yep. Can you make like, you know, a one minute description of why that's true for people who might be on the fence or are just kind of hearing it for, you know, probably a lot of the times, but maybe you want to hear a little bit more about that? Um. Sure. I, I mean, one minute. Uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, Sixty seconds, please, Nicole. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just think that if you live in America, number one, as a white person, regardless of how you know woke or active you are, you benefit from your whiteness. Period. Mm -hmm. Because that's the way our country was set up, hands down. And even if you think that like things have changed and things have moved in the right direction and sort of you know, there's been some dismantling of systems, which I believe is true. Um, you know, if you think about something as simple as sort of uh, generational wealth, right? Mm -hmm. And the fact that, you know, regardless of if there is upward mobility, you can't make up for the two or three or four generations where like you were allowed to own <laughs> property, you know what I mean? Yeah. And you can't make up for the educational inequities for generations, period. We haven't caught up with ourselves yet. So like, I, you know, I won't argue the fact that we are, we're, we're still living within those systems, um, no matter how much progress mm -hmm. has or has not been made. And then on top of that, I think that um, if you have any access to um, media, the story that has been told and is told um, about particularly um, black people, but people of color, um, has told a, has told a story that makes you know black men scary, so that when you're 12, you you're seen as a threat, um, you know and so on and so on. And so unless you live under a rock in this country, you know, you have internalized racism, period, you know? Yeah. So that, okay, so that's step one, which is kind of understanding that it's baked into this country. And we, yeah. and, and we as white women are benefiting from it. So then- A hundred percent. And then what would you say like step two is? Sure, I think, uh, it's probably attached to this, so this might be one, you know, one A, uh, would be to sort of accept that you're going to have to deal with it almost as an addiction um, and, you know, check your defensiveness, period. It's going to hurt. You can't do the work if you are going to be defensive um, and if you're not going to admit that there's something addicting about the comfort of being white in this country. So I think as therapists, we talk all the time about leaning into your discomfort. Um, yeah. And it is so hard for people. I mean, it is so difficult for people to lean into that, even when they have like good, healthy thoughts about it. It's the action. It's the behavior change is what you're talking about, right? Sure. I mean, I think like somebody really smart, J.E. Helms, uh, came up with one of the many um, sort of, uh, sort of, 
stages of racial identity development. Um, and the first stage there would be contact when you move past the, you know, sort of like I'm colorblind or racism doesn't exist anymore piece um, to sort of disintegration um, it's called. And that comes with uh, feelings of guilt and shame and it can be very emotional. Um, but just sort of knowing that you can move through that stage with supportive peers, supportive, trusted people of color. Um, and then I think the next piece is kind of thinking about um, anti-racism as a practice, sort of like a practice like meditation or yoga or mindfulness. Like if you don't commit to practicing the work every day, like you would to a diet, would like you would to Peloton. Um, you're, you're not. <laughs> you know your audience I know. Two Peloton obsessed people here. <laughs> um, you're not going to change and grow. Um, and so I think that would be the next step. Um, and I think if you want to tie it then to the the role of a parent, Wait, would can I be you yes yeah, yeah. Ooh, i was so excited about the parent part but i want to hear this piece of like because <laughs> yep. i really this part resonates with me is like of uh, the anxiety and like the guilt and the shame and um like if and and so to me what that looks like is sometimes if i like say something and i've talked on this podcast a million times about how socially anxious i am like i'm mm -hmm. not anxious to talk to people but i if i when i talk to people i like sit and spin to make sure i said the exact right thing if i feel anxious about it later do you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. and so part of it is saying is this right nicole like where it's like if i say something that i'm like oh maybe that was offensive or maybe there was like a microaggression in there and then I have to like feel that anxiety and like really think about it. And that's okay. Cause that's what motivates me to like learn. Is that like what we're saying here? Yeah. And I think, you know, the go-to move a lot of the times because the shame like hurts if you're really committed to the journey, yeah. um, you know, is, is to either shut down and run away or get defensive um, and, and angry. And I think, you know, working from the lens of I'm committed to this work, if I get feedback from a person of color, you know, um, that hurts, the best thing that I can do if I'm really committed to this work is to ask a question and, and then recommit to doing it better the next time. I know better, now I'll do better if you're actually bought into the idea of doing this work. Um, and I think, you know, the comfort, particularly from black women, I'm gonna say, that you will receive in in that, that journey and in your hurt, if you're comfortable enough to kind of like express that, um, is sort of remarkable. I mean, people have been talking a lot about how like so much of this country was built on the backs of black women. And I think um, there is an empathy towards hard and painful feelings that black people in general, but I think really black women feel. Um, and so I don't know, there's gotta be some trust there um, in the fact that like, we can often be a soft place to land if you're willing to be vulnerable. Can I ask a question? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I guess that's what we're doing. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, I think 
putting it in my mindset as a practice is really helpful because I feel like for a lot of white women, it's like cyclical work. Like something happens, it motivates you, you get involved. And then like every practice, like we don't sustain it well. And I feel like that's what I'm realizing. Like I need to do a much better job of sustaining my practice. But then what you were saying was so interesting to me because I feel like I know that I have made mistakes and then I feel ashamed and I feel guilty and I can like feel it right now talking about it. And then I get stuck because I'm like, but I feel like I'm not supposed to ask black women questions and put that on you. Right. And like, or, or if people come to me and I don't have, you know, I don't feel like I'm supposed like a client, if a client comes to me, I don't feel like it's necessarily my place as a white woman to answer that question. And then I'm like, I don't know where to go. Do you have any thoughts or advice? Sure. I mean, okay. I I would say, and this is sort of revealing my own, um, uh, sort of dealing with my personal sort of relationship with um, white supremacy culture, which just just FYI is a framework. And I think a lot of people hear that term and then shut down because it's like, ooh, white people equals bad. It's like not at all what it means. It means that we've centered whiteness for so long that there's like sort of characteristics about our country and the way what we uphold and value sort of that are aligned a lot of times with, with whiteness. Um, and so I, I think a lot about the power of the written word. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that there is a place to invest as much time in your other sort of um, pursuits and things like, you know, self-healing things um, in, in doing your own reading. Um, but a caveat is that you will, we will never sort of intellectualize away racism but it's part of it's part of exposure and you need exposure to kind of um do the work i'm not one of those <clears throat> women or black women who believe that um you can't ever ask black women um their opinion i think that's controversial but I also think that if we're screaming to sort of have our, our voices lifted and heard, we have to be willing to use them no matter who's asking the question. So that's kind of where I'm at. I, I, I feel like it's it's open game. And if the answer is like, you know what, I'm exhausted, I'm tired, and I just don't want to, you have to accept that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it's a problem to ask um, and just accept the answer that you get. And then I think that you know, in conversations with other white women, I think it is imperative to, you know, yes, authentically talk about your experiences, but to center black voices. So, you know, instead of like coming from a place of sort of I'm the authority because I've, I've read a book, um, it's like I had this conversation with this person and this is what I heard. Um, I'm still sort of muddling through it and trying to like really synthesize and internalize what the message was but this is what i heard Mm -hmm. um is is another strategy but yeah i think it's okay to ask the question i think that piece as a therapist um of the anxiety and shame like i talk to my kids about using that as um 
like their motivation for change all the time, right? Maybe they're, you know, they want to, they got a B, they want to get an A next time or whatever. Well, use that anxiety to motivate you to do better in school. And this is what we're saying is like, we need to use our own anxiety to, yep. to do our work, mm-hmm. right? And, right. And when, yeah, okay, sorry. I think, sorry. I think there's like another interesting piece if you, you know, we're thinking about, whiteness and white supremacy culture is like the piece around um perfectionism and i think yeah. you know mm-hmm. that is such a huge part of the the reason why it is so hard like when you do make a mistake um and what that means um to you as a as a person and i think you know sort of developing a culture of appreciation for effort is really important rather than you know i got you know 100% on my test I, I put in a lot of effort. I put in a lot of work. Um, and learning from mistakes is, you know, one of the most beautiful things about life. Uh, sort of, and that's a piece about um, sort of parenting too. Um, you know, if we're going to be an anti-racist family, we really do have to say it's okay to not get it perfect because nobody does. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the beauty is in the mistakes, the beauty is in the effort that we are willing to put in every day. Guys, I did not know that that was considered part of white supremacy culture. We talk about that all the time, Nicole, mm-hmm. specifically with like eating disorder stuff and, mm-hmm. and anxiety mm-hmm. for kids mm-hmm. all the time. I had no idea that that was considered part of like white supremacy culture. Yep. When I was just sitting here thinking about, I am perfectionistic and I hate hurting people, right? And so I... I'm like, I always am like, I'm, I get afraid that I'm going to say something hurtful mm-hmm. and I'm like, but it's way more hurtful to not challenge the white supremacy system, right? Like making yeah. a mistake and then feeling the shame and guilt and knowing like, oh, I, I engaged in a microaggression or I hurt someone, right? Like that feels so terrible, but like mm-hmm. not attempting to do something better is so much more hurtful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you're essentially avoiding, you are buying into white supremacy culture by avoiding that shame and guilt too. Yep. So mm-hmm. you're never stepping mm-hmm. out of your comfort zone. Well, you're just avoiding vulnerability, mm-hmm. right? The vulnerability of making a mistake and being exposed as making a mistake as someone who made a mistake. When we encourage people all the time to do that. Right, to make mistakes. Yeah. But here I was saying like, oh, this is my own thing. Yeah, no, us too. Yeah. Talk, right? Yeah. Like, no, because I'm a white woman in, in America. Um, so Nick, what should we do? Like what, honestly, like, you know, what can we do better if you had to give us like the number one thing? Um, wow. Well, number one thing. No, no. However many you want to give, tell me what to do. I think, um, you know, a big, a big piece is the practice piece. And I think, um, if, if you're going to actually commit, like, please don't just post things on social media and sort of do your own sort of white supremacy culture audit of your life and your work um, and your family, um, and then find a way to commit to that practice um, of sort of dismantling that um, every day. I, I, I think that's, that's the biggest piece. And I think, you know, when you're raising a family, and you're able to model, you know, like here's a moment that I can sort of see something 
and name something and then don't just stop there, but actually figure out a way to do something about it or do things differently. When you model that for your kids, um, they're going to internalize that and not sort of be comfortable in, in their whiteness and say like, hey, I'm not actually racist, you know, um, I'm non-racist, but not, you know, be willing to be anti-racist because it's scary. Um, and these days, boy, people have been losing friends, myself included, uh, um, I think is really huge. And then I think being willing to um, not whitewash the topic of racism, just commit to that. Commit to not saying like, you know, it's just about treating people equally or not looking at their color because we're all the same on the inside. That's absolutely so detrimental to sort of raising an anti-racist family um, because it's not true, it's a lie. Um, and I think it's demeaning to people of color. Um, and then I think sort of having our honest conversations about when you get it wrong and what that feels like and sort of revealing some of your process to your kids um, so that they know it's okay to like mess up and say like, well, mommy, how did you fix it? Or daddy, how did you fix it? Or grandma, whoever your caretaker is. Um, and to kind of like be vulnerable enough with your kids to say like, yeah, I really messed that up. Um, so it's not like important. just saying, I'm going to read white fragility. It's, it's, saying, no. it's saying, I have made so many mistakes in my life and I feel so sad and anxious and guilty about them. I'm, I'm going to use that and I'm going to learn more to fight it, right? So it's not just like picking up the book, but it's really having that conversation before about the mistakes that we've made. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, and then I think like if they if they get to witness you, um, like use your voice or engage in some activity that is like purposefully anti-racist, it's just really powerful. Um, more powerful than reading really great books, you know, just as if not more powerful than having, you know, dedicated time to having these conversations and exposing them to the truth about racism. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking as you were talking, like, I, I wonder even how many of our peers have conversations about racism with their children, much less even follow through with this, right? Like instead of just saying, Oh, that's on the news or talking about a story, like really talking about it. And then also really committing as a family to paying attention to what is happening in your, in your own home, what is happening in the different pieces of your world, like art, music, culture, like how, where do you see it? Like yep. spotting it, identifying it, naming it and, and talking about that versus just mm -hmm. having that one-off conversation about like racism's bad. In the month of February. In the month of, I know. <laughs> so glad there's a month. <laughs> um, which is even I a think, short month with leap year. <laughs> Let me just Right, right. I think a really like interesting interesting example for me is actually um, a one about my my family. I'll put it out there. Um, all three of us, my me and my siblings, married white people, um, and so this journey has been interesting interesting in navigating that sort of 
within our relationships, but also within raising biracial kids. But, um, you know, so these conversations are starting to be had more and more in their households. I'm pushing them as hard as I can, even if it's uncomfortable. But like the moment where I thought one of them got it was where um, they went from sort of, there was a, an event that took place at one of their schools. Um, and it was the only time that there was black representation it's a very it's very white where they live um and it was like a basketball game um which i thought was horrifying <laughs> so the first time you know my little nieces and nephews were exposed to like highlighting black people in their school it was like we're gonna have a fun a fun sports day we're gonna play basketball and mm. i think one of them actually asked like is daddy gonna play um oh. with, so so horrifying so they were able to kind of like after seeing it advertised, have a family conversation at home um, about why that's wrong, about why there's so much discomfort, about why it was hard to hear that this was happening and hard to think about daddy's feelings. But then the next step was like, what do you think we can do about it? Mm -hmm. um, and so they ended up, you know, having the oldest girl write a letter to the principal and you know, the mom posted something to um, the family, you know, sort of group about like, hey, um, if we're going to do this, is there a way that we can, you know, have, you know, people of color from all walks of life come in and, and have kids who are predominantly white be exposed to them in different ways. So, you know, it's like that taking that next step towards action, even if it's uncomfortable, because it's like, why ruffle the feathers in my pretty, you know, New York suburban neighborhood? Um, but it's important because that's the work. You know, it makes me think about I, when my daughter started elementary school, we, I live in a very, um, the school system here is very white. There's not a lot of diversity in our school system where I am in particular in the area. And um, immediately, like in kindergarten, um, I, my, I had a text thread with um, a, a mom who was in a biracial family, another mom, another mom who was black, but we were, we had our own little text thread and our, it was like a little survival text thread kind of because stuff, certain things would go down in the classroom and we would collectively have our little conversation. Oftentimes I would get elected the spokesperson and, um, and, and we would kind of deal with it in these small little teeny bubbles if that makes yep. sense, all the time. Yep. And not making big waves or big changes, truthfully, just quietly addressing one off. I mean, really, you know, monthly at a minimum, but like these, and never did we ever do anything really big. And what's interesting is um, many of those families moved mm -hmm. out of the area before high school started, for example. They were just done. They were just tired of the quiet yeah. fight, kind of, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, Nick, I have a question too. So, yep. and we're getting to the end of this because this was really for us as people, right? Uh -huh. I want to know this better for myself first. And then the next step is somehow we're like kind of running a business. Um, and then the next step is figuring this part out in our business. And so I know that that is like your kind of your job. Um, can you talk about what you offer businesses so that we can know and also to tell other people like the cool stuff that people are actually doing? Sure. I mean, I think it's like really exciting that it's new and developing, you know, like we want, you know, sort of consulting or have somebody like in a role around anti-racism at our workplace. So, um, 
I think what I find myself doing is a couple of things. It's either um, like executive um, consultation where somebody sort of runs a business and they want to audit their systems and operations and hiring practices to represent and sort of advertising to represent um, anti-racist beliefs and practices. Um, so that's one piece. Um, I, so Nicole sure. introduced me to this idea of an audit like six months ago, maybe. Yeah. And it, when I heard it, I was like, oh my gosh, that's genius. Like auditing and really looking at stuff in such a level of detail. Mm -hmm. I just want to highlight that she's used the word audit twice. Because when I when she mm -hmm. used it with me, I was like, that's so effing cool. I don't know. It's kind of like auditing your, like you were saying, even with our families, right? Like it's right. a similar yeah. step. Yeah, an audit. Like, yeah, it's such a great audit. idea. Yeah. It. Like purposeful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. sorry, Nick. I just wanted to sorry. No, no, absolutely. And then I think I um, sort of have a client base that just wants like personal coaching. Um, and so, which is sometimes awkward because it's usually the person's white and I'm black. Um, <laughs> but I, I think, um, you know, it's interesting and sort of like client directed, like here are the pieces or places in my life where I feel like I've been getting it wrong and I do want to process this and I do want to sort of talk about you know my inclination towards um, defensiveness and I want to sort of have a safe space to do some of that work and get some tools um, that I can use and reflect on um, so that like I can sort of have like do that better in all aspects of my life and then the next part is working with sort of organizations as a whole um, so schools, nonprofits, um, you know, sort of um, clinical practices, uh, and also that's sort of very goal-directed and sort of um, sort of professional development sort of session. So I teach about racism and anti-racism, like sort of the basics, um, and then also make space for like goal setting. Um, and, you know, affinity group space where, you know, people are digging uh, more into sort of, you know, issues where they're at in safe spaces. Um, and also it's very goal directed based on like sort of the needs of the institution or the organization. Um, so those are kind of like the three pockets that I, that I do. Wow. We're going to be hitting you up with like as yeah. soon as we hang up this phone yeah the next doorbell ring won't be the mailman it's gonna be one of us <laughs> hey Boston, really soon yeah. um, okay and then so if people listening to this are interested in any of those services how can they reach you um yeah how can people reach you nicole because i think a i think everyone should because i feel so like i learned a shit ton sorry i'm just gonna swear that's um, I learned a lot and I talk to Nicole all the time. <laughs> I know. I mean, this is the cool part. Like, I feel like I'm, I'm, I like, I can barely speak because like all I can, like my brain is just going so fast and I'm watching Amanda even take this in. Like, I know you guys have been friends forever, but I feel like I'm watching her learn in this mm -hmm. hour, like so much too. It's kind of fun. It has been really fun. Yeah. I mean, currently uh, you would be able to, um, look up my website, um, NNK Consulting, um, NNK Consulting. And like Nancy? Mm -hmm. Oh, like Nicole. <laughs> and, 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 and Katie. Oh, right. Okay. So NNK Consulting, mm -hmm. Nicole and yep. Katie on it. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm losing my faith in Amanda, but go ahead. <laughs> I'm just um, kidding. I'm not. 
and that will sort of like outline our backgrounds and our philosophy and our style um, and then uh, the different sort of ser services that we provide. And people can do it from all over the country because it's all over Zoom right now. Right. Great. We have Perfect. like a, a really great dynamic in person, but we get that we can't do that right now. So you have a great um, dynamic yep. via the phone. Yeah, we too. haven't even seen you and we think the dynamic's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I appreciate this was so fun. I had a great time. Nicole, thank you so much. This is so fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me and pushing my own thinking. Oh, thank you, Nicole. I love you. Love you too. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. At Virginia Family Therapy, we continue to work with Nicole to create an anti-racist practice. We have offices in Charlottesville, in the Falls Church area, Northern Virginia, and also we provide teletherapy across the whole state of Virginia. If you have any questions about what you heard in our episode today or any mental health needs if you're in Virginia, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. Thank you. <laughs>